You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. invite you to follow in the book of Colossians, a letter called Colossians, written to people living at a city named Colossae, a relatively small city in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, an inland city where Paul had never visited, but he had reports of a group of believers there growing and healthy and yet resisting uh, some difficulties and some interference from unwelcome outside teachers, and we've been trying to hear many of the wonderful things that God gave Paul to say in this letter. I think you understand that no passage of Scripture is, you know, neatly divided up for the preacher that says, if you're going to preach in chapter 2, cover these several verses, and here's where it begins, and here's where it breaks. You have to, it's a judgment call where you go and how much you try to cover. But today I'm going to pick up the summation of last time with chapter 2, verse 9, and then go forward through verse 15 of Colossians 2 as we're seeking to hear what God is speaking in this long-ago letter, which really is His holy word for all time. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." This is God's Word. In our present economic hard times, there are probably any number of forms of cancellation notices that could strike dread or at least unpleasantness into people who would receive such a notice. One could be, for example, a notice from a bank, the bank that holds your credit card, saying something like, due to your consecutive late payments, we are now canceling your line of credit and the outstanding balance from your visa card is now due and payable in full. Another could be the electric company announcing your electrical service will be terminated, canceled as of June 1st, 2009. Certainly nobody wants to get notices like that. 
And we pray that you wouldn't get notices like that. I tried to think whether there would be types of news of cancellations that would be welcome. You know, so many of them would be negative and unwelcome. I thought, what could we get by way of word of a cancellation that would be good, that we would say, great? Well, I I can come up with one real easily that uh, we know brings delight to many children. Due to the snow this morning, school is canceled, and they rejoice everywhere. Here's another. Think about Abraham Lincoln with his emancipation proclamation in the mid-19th century that led to the 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which put in that simple but powerful statement, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the USA. Slavery is canceled. That was a word of tremendous good and blessing for millions of people, but of course it was accomplished only at a price of literally thousands of people giving their lives in the battles of the Civil War to bring it to a place where it could happen. I believe today, as I look for a main theme in the passage that I've read, Colossians 2, 11 to 15, what comes out at me is a viewpoint here or a thread through this passage of things that God has canceled for us in Christ. Instead of being a threat to our life, these cancellations are great blessings. They are ways of telling us the tremendous work that God has done for us in Christ. Now, last time in the preceding passage, we looked at Paul was summarizing that something he's been saying in various ways all through Colossians, especially in the middle of chapter 1, that Christ literally was the full expression of the triune God, visible and made known to mankind. And so, he said, we possess the fullness of God when we know Christ. That's an amazing statement. That, that is probably the central theme of Colossians. The fullness of God dwells in Christ, and we believers have access to that real fullness by knowing Christ. Well, now he's going forward with that, and I believe he's elaborating in these verses some of the changes that this brings about. God initiated changes in the lives of believers. What's different because of what God has done in Christ? And these are things that should make a practical difference if we would understand them. In the words of Martin Luther, we Christians made a, Luther called it a fortunate exchange with Christ. What he meant was that all that belonged to us became Christ's, our sin, and the excellence of what he was became ours. A fortunate exchange indeed. Christ assumes our debt, and we get the riches of his grace and his righteousness, and we need to understand that these things bring about strategic cancellations. There are two that I have in mind through this text today. One will be a longer first point and then a shorter second point. As a first point today, hear the declaration of our text that I think could could be summarized in this way. Every Christian has received decisive cancellation of our condemnation under God's written law. 
Every Christian has received cancellation decisively of our condemnation under God's written law. Now, to show you this, you say, well, I don't see that in verse 11. You're right. I'm jumping up into the end of verse 13 and especially verse 14 because I think the main thesis of the text is there, and then we're going to go back and have you see how 11 through 13 contributes to it. But here's the thesis. It would be stated this way. God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. Now, of course, he's talking about the law of God by the written code. And he's talking about the way the law of God, which was expressed in large portions of the Old Testament, created great legal demands for how people were to live and obey and and look to God, how they were to worship, how they were to treat one another, how they were to do business, how they were to treat their wives and their families, and so on. Now, God never intended that his law by itself would be an avenue of saving people. There's a great misunderstanding about that. There are even people in Christian churches that think, I just heard it not so long ago. Someone said, my my friend's idea of Christianity is accept Jesus as your Savior and then live the Ten Commandments. Well, good luck. God didn't give us his law to save us. He gave us his law to express his holy character. By learning the law, we learn really what the essence of God is. We learn how different God is, how different his standards are from anything devised by man in this world. And the only way the law would ever bring anybody salvation would be if they could scrupulously and perfectly live out every statute and every clause and every detail all the time. Because God is 100% holy. And that's the standard that his law raises. Galatians 3.10 states it very clearly. And, and by the way, there, when Paul is talking in Galatians 3.10, he refers back to the book of Deuteronomy for his authority. But he says there, all who rely on keeping the law are under a curse. For cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things that are written in the book of the law to do them, to do all of them. Now, you could come away from this text, perhaps, and maybe form a wrong impression and say, well, the law of God wasn't such a good thing because it condemned us, because it made us know we were sinful. And, and what this passage then is saying in verse 14 is that God canceled his law because it really was bad. If you draw that conclusion, you are absolutely wrong. The law of God is good. Because it's simply a revelation of who he is and what it means to be who he is and how those who would belong to him would behave in this world. But because he is so holy and so different from the sin that characterizes us, that law naturally piles up accusations against us. The good law makes us feel bad and look bad because it shows us what our sin is. And it is this guilt, this burden that the law puts on us, which Paul is saying the cross of Christ canceled, not the law proper. You know what the law does. You turn around, and even if you want to just stick with the Ten Commandments, which is only a condensation, a a code that there's many, many other things, of course, in God's law, but, but they are the core. 
And you look at them and they say, well, don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't lust after that woman. And, and you think, well, Jesus said, I break these when I think. And I, I really, if I face myself honesty, I've, I've broken every one of them before the day gets very old. And so I'm multiplying all the time this burden, this accusation that the good law puts upon me. I glimpse in the law the character of God, and it, it is something that soars high above me like great mountain ranges. And I say, how can I ever climb there? The mountains are beautiful. The mountains represent something grand and good, but I can't climb them. I can't ever reach that peak. And so an honest person looks at the law of God and says, well, it just makes me guilty. Guilty. Guilty again. And I would not have known, perhaps, what my sin was without the law, but now I do know it, and there's no excuse. It shows me all my imperfections. No wonder when Isaiah had a great vision of the God who gave this law of his own perfection in Isaiah 6, that man, a good man, an upright man, fell down on his face in the temple and said, Woe is me! I'm undone! For I realized the tremendous difference between me and the God who expresses his perfection in his law. Now, the situation we believe in the case of the Colossian Christians is not only did they have that, that burden of guilt that they couldn't keep God's law, but to make it even worse, there were false teachers among them who were emphasizing new principles, new ideas, and saying, well, here's another list of rules for you to add. And in fact, if you really want to be the super spiritual, you'll be sure to keep these rules. And so the knots were getting tied even tighter. And they were already guilty by the law of God, and now man-made laws and regulations were put on them. And here comes the Apostle Paul to say, look, God doesn't want you all uptight, all tied up in pretzel-like knots of guilt and going through your lives trying to live by an impossible standard. Know this. Because of what Christ did, that burdensome load produced by God's law has been completely canceled on your behalf. I quoted Galatians 3.10 a moment ago. Right in that same chapter, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. If you have truly heard that and you believe that, it should be a, a point of tremendous liberation and joy and freedom for you. I was thinking about a film that was out, I believe, in the uh, late 1980s, I think, is when it came out. It had a very simple title. Maybe some of you saw it. It was called Mission. Sounded like a Christian movie, and I think many of us watched it and well, it was, it, it was a Christian movie with, with a certain message, but not the typical evangelical movie. It was a story of some Spanish Roman Catholic missionaries, Jesuit missionaries, a couple centuries ago, trying to evangelize natives in a South American jungle. The theme of the movie was basically about the, 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 the clash between God's principles and the desire to take over the jungle and exploit it for business purposes. But in came these missionaries with a pure motive of bringing the gospel, bringing the message of the church to these unreached tribes. And one of their party, as they struggled to 
make their way through the jungle, had been judged guilty of a crime. And so he had to have his punishment uh, worked out on him right there. They didn't have a prison they could send him to. So they put chains, they wrapped chains around him, and then they attached to the chains all of that, most of the heavy metal objects that they had in their expedition, a, a, a cooking pot, you know, a few pans, uh, some, I don't know, other, other pieces of armor, I think, Spanish armor, and all this stuff, this clanking metal was chained around this guy. And he had to follow the, the little party through the jungle, uphill, downhill, cross streams, over rocks, dragging this clanking, heavy load. Day after day, that was his sentence for his crime. Well, finally, in the film, this group encountered the, the primitive tribe they were trying to reach deep in the jungle interior. And the Indians came and met them and were studying these strange outsiders. And, and this gentleman, with the chains and the pots and pans hanging from him, was, was an object of much curiosity. And one Indian finally came over to him and looked at him and, and laughed. And it, it, his, just his actions, you couldn't understand his language, but it was very clear that he thought it was absurd that anyone should be dressed that way or have to carry all that around. And the Indian simply reached and, and lifted the chains and unwrapped them from the man and threw the metal, and it went clanking down a hill off of the man's back. And that man, guilty though he was, reacted with tremendous joy and glee and almost danced on the spot that, that here this primitive man had released him. I wonder if we Christians ever understand that that's what Christ has done. He took the burden that we carry, the obligation of, of guilt and owing God what we couldn't pay, and threw it off us. That's the thesis here of Colossians 2.14. God canceled the code with its regulation that stood against us. We had a huge I-O-U to God that we could not pay. Jesus took it and tore it up. Better still, he even paid it on our behalf, and it could be torn up after it was paid. What do we owe God in regard to his law? This is a huge subject, of course, that I can't get far into today, but we do owe God something in relation to his law but not some scrupulous, back-breaking, burdensome you know, way of, of keeping every jot and tittle of it and then feeling awful when we fail. No, what we owe God is the joyful approach of a forgiven believer who now comes and says, Lord, I'm glad to bend my mind and my will to your law. You've forgiven the penalty, so now help me to look to it as a standard that will bring joy to my life. The Ten Commandments aren't done away with. But we come to these things now and say, great, here are God's standards. I should be truthful. I shouldn't covet. I shouldn't lust. I can ask God for his empowering nature and work in me, having forgiven me to help me to use this as my standard. That's why Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I love the way the hymn writer took that, and in and can it be, you know, no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. He was echoing this text exactly. Everything that Jesus is, is mine. Condemnation is canceled. That, I believe, is the primary premise or theme of this 
paragraph or text before us here. Now, I've really just spoken about verse 14, and you realize there's some words before that, and maybe this is a strange way to deal with the text, but I'm going to backtrack now for a minute with the same first point, God canceling the condemnation, and show you three figures or images that Paul brings up even before he states the theme exactly. I'm just reversing his order. Things that God has done that are actually past tense accomplishments for every Christian. Here's how they're stated. You were circumcised, you were buried with him in baptism, and you were raised with Christ. I think these are all part of this cancellation. They're just ways of illustrating it. First of all, he talks about circumcision. Now, I think you have an idea that it would be a huge subject to approach all that circumcision was in the Old Testament. The idea of the surgical marking of a boy's body, preferably at eight days of age, an Israelite boy was brought and his body was cut and marked to say that he was a potential heir of the covenant of God. Potential heir because the physical right itself didn't guarantee anything. It only marked him. It was a sign. He would have to respond with faith. And even Moses said in Deuteronomy 10.16 that the circumcision that really mattered wasn't what you did with a knife to the boy's body. It was circumcision of the heart. The heart had to rejoice in God and take hold of him and know that it was cut off from its old sinful ways. Otherwise, there are various places like the book of Hebrews that say physical circumcision counted for nothing. Well, Paul now says that Christians have experienced a non-literal and yet real cutting off of our dominating sinful nature. You notice how that's said in verse 11 here. Not with a circumcision done with hands of men, but the circumcision done by Christ. I'm sorry, the beginning part there, verse 11. In the putting off of the sinful nature. He's talking about a non-literal thing and yet a real thing that has happened. You know, it doesn't have to be done with hands to be real. Your slavery to a sinful nature that made it impossible for you to please God has been cut as with a great knife by God. Cut away. In Philippians 3.3, Paul said about Jew and Gentile, male and female alike, the people of God, the church, all believers, he said, we are the true circumcision. See, up until then, oh, the people that were called circumcision were the people of physical, lineal, ancestral Israel. Paul said, no, no, you don't understand. It's God's intent that men and women, Gentile and Jew, would all be the circumcision, those marked by God, those cut off from their sinful nature by the powerful work of God's salvation. So this is one of the images that Paul is calling up here to say has to do with this cancellation. Our fleshly nature, our natural sin nature that we have from Adam does not have to reign supreme in us. And in fact, it does not in the Christian. It's still present. It still acts there. But it is not the dominating influence. When the Spirit of God comes and cuts off our enslavement to our old nature. Well, then, without even pausing for a breath, he goes on with another image in verse 12 and says that this circumcision happens having been buried with Christ in baptism. 
I would side with the majority who believe here that we're no more talking about literal physical baptism with this than we were talking about literal physical circumcision in the verse before. But it's an image. It's a symbol. Baptism is almost like a one-word code that Paul uses here to represent the whole conversion experience. You will go wrong if you take this verse and, and try to say, well, the literal act of water baptism accomplished the thing Paul's talking about. No, that doesn't seem to be what he's saying. What he is saying is that both baptism and circumcision, roughly equivalent acts of faith or signs of faith, represent this stepping into a new relationship with God in Christ, if indeed they are accompanied by faith. And neither physical circumcision nor baptism guarantee that new relationship, but they are signs of it. And so here again he's saying, as a sign that that you've actually crossed the line. You've stepped over. There's another place where Paul says you've crossed over from death to life. This symbol of baptism as your confession of faith and your coming to trust in Christ is another illustration. And then he gives a third sub-point here. He's, He's not content to just illustrate it one way or two ways. He says it yet another way. And, and again, past tense. You were raised with Christ, and you were made alive when you were dead. Paul would want to very definitely counter the idea that many modern Christians have is, is that the main significance of Easter is, well, Jesus rose, so I can have eternal life, and I'll live in heaven one day when I die. Well, of course, that's, that is a valid message of Easter, but that is not hardly the only message of Easter. Paul is saying, I'm not talking about a resurrection that will just come one day. You were raised with Christ. You were made alive, you see, by the action of God. And that's effective now, and Christians need to know that. They need to know that that not only have they effectively died with Christ, and their baptism seems to symbolize that, not only is the sin nature cut off in the eyes of God, but they've been raised, given the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit to actually be new people today with new power, new hope, new joy, new energy. And you just can't be alive, in a sense, unless God has made you alive this way. You need nothing less than a resurrection from the dead. And God, through Christ, gave that to you. You share in that just as you shared in his death. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians. And yet I live, but no longer I. But Christ lives in me. God's own pulse is beating in me. And so all we're saying here up to this point, verses 11 to 14, I think are woven around somewhat of a complex weaving, I would admit, as, as Paul presents things. But they're woven around this singular theme, if you can clear it up. There's a, there's a clear spine in these verses that every Christian has received decisive cancellation of our condemnation under God's law. One more point this morning, and it's shorter. Verse 15, there is, I think, a second thing that is canceled for us, and it goes like this. 
for every believer, Christ has canceled the power of God's arch enemies. For every believer, Christ has canceled the power of God's arch enemies. Here's how verse 15 says it. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Let me point you back up to verse 10, where it says, we have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Paul, as he writes this letter, is very conscious of spiritual warfare, of spiritual power at work against the gospel and against believers. Now, he's already said, Christ is the head over these powers and authorities. So he's just elaborating that in verse 15 when he says what happened at the cross was actually a conclusive defeat to a long warfare. And Christ now has canceled the ultimate power of God's worst enemies. In ancient times, apparently it was not enough just to beat an enemy in war. At least under the Roman domain, you did something else. The Romans loved to do this. When they conquered somebody, they rounded up all the captives and probably put them in chains or whatever, took away all their insignia and their fancy uniforms and dressed them in rags, and then marched them. If possible, they'd bring them right down to Rome or whatever the nearest Roman center of power was, and they'd parade these people in front of Roman citizens who could come out. And, you know, it was like the 4th of July parade, but it was probably more often than that, that Rome would, would say, look! We have conquered these people. They thought they were so great. They were nagging over in this corner of the empire. Look at them now. They're nothing. Look at their chief here being dragged along in chains. Colossians 2.15 says Christ did that to God's most powerful enemies, Satan being their leader. I really believe most Christians today do not know who their real enemies are. Do you know, as I look around in Christianity, an awful lot of time and energy is spent in fighting against fellow Christians. If you're involved in any Christian organization, I'm on the board of an organization or two, and wow, I see how much energy gets expended in struggles and squabbles with other believers, others who claim the name of Christ. In fact, it almost consumes all the time. And you think, wait a minute, aren't we people with a message of the truth that the world is starving to hear that can change lives and rescue people? Shouldn't that be where our focus would be? Of course. And yet Christians squabble among themselves. You know, it would be as foolish as if in these days of international war on terrorism, I'm not sure actually if the current administration thinks that war is over. They don't want to use the word anymore, but it isn't. We have a war on terrorism. We have enemies who want to destroy us. So let's do this. Let's have the U.S. Army attack the U.S. Navy. And let's have the Marines go to war against the Coast Guard. Oh, you say, how stupid. Nobody would ever do that. But Christians do that. We really do. We are sometimes at war against the people who wear the same uniform and serve under the same flag. And I really believe there's a widespread agnosticism among many Christians about the true existence of Satan and his spiritual host that war against us. He is the reason why Christians fight each other. 
He is the one who pits Christians against each other. He loves it. This is the way he fights to get us not to be considering him directly, but fighting other people and other things that aren't the real battle. We are in a spiritual warfare in this world today. And the Scripture says our deadly enemy is Satan, who personifies evil, the great tempter, the great liar, the great deceiver. He's called the prince of this present world. But you have to know something important about him. He's deceptive. He is wily. He insinuates himself into situations. He discombobulates. That's one of my favorite words. He discombobulates things people are trying to do. But here's what you need to know about him. Christ defeated him. Christ conclusively humiliated him, triumphed over him, stripped him of his ultimate authority. The words here, the language in this verse 15 says he was disarmed and he was exposed to to public shame. The announcement here is that Satan's ability to absolutely ruin or permanently capture any of God's true people who belong to Christ was canceled at the cross. Now, he still wreaks harm. He still turns our minds inside out. But Jesus once told his disciples, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That was a prophecy. He was prophesying a triumph that he knew would be won, but it wouldn't be all over until this bedraggled and defeated foe actually continued to fight and struggle and kick against God's people while he was being dragged from the battlefield. I wonder if you've ever watched a history program or anything about Adolf Hitler in the last days of his life, the last few weeks of his life, as he spent them in that bunker in Berlin. There he was with just a few inner core people. Hitler, who had ridden so high in power that he could spread wreckage and decimation and death all over Europe. The armies of the Allies were were coming hard from the west towards Berlin. The armies of Russia were coming hard from the east, and the, the jaws were just about to close around Berlin. And here he was in this deep underground bunker, sending out insane orders to his generals, go attack here, send the Air Force there, do this. He was sure that he could still win. And most of the generals weren't even listening to him or obeying him at all anymore because this demented dictator, before the final hour that he took his own life, was a laughing stock. He lost. He had already lost. And yet he had created terrible disaster in the world despite his doom being sure. Well, we can resist the great enemy of God. He's the enemy of our souls. He wants our downfall. Spiritual warfare is real in this world, and you not believing in it is exactly a sign that it is succeeding. However, we can resist this one. We can rebuke this one when we recognize him. When we have biblically shaped minds, we can see him at work, and we can say, no, Satan, I rebuke you. I walk away from you. I stand up and say, I will not serve you there. Resist him and he will flee, the Scripture says. Why? Because the death of Christ was a conflict, a battle in which 
the chief combatant, Christ, died, but then rose, and when he rose, you see, he broke Satan's whole chain of command. This text in Colossians assures you and asserts the fact that he is the head, Christ is the head over every power and authority. Why? Because he disarmed those powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at his cross. The real condemnation that would hang over us from birth otherwise is canceled. Who shall lay any charge to God's elect? Who is he that's going to condemn us now, Romans 8 asks. And our worst enemies in this world, our spiritual enemies, who aim at deviously, powerfully aim at getting inside us and turning us around and turning us from God, these enemies are actually vipers with the poison drained out of their fangs. They cannot destroy us if we will cling to our Lord and Savior. Our text says God forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code that stands against us. Thank God. What a wonderful cancellation this is. You should rejoice to welcome its news. Everything about us is different because of it. Fullness of life in trusting Jesus Christ today is a promise that your ultimate guilt has been canceled and your ultimate enemy has been canceled as well. Praise God for the one who has done this for his people. Father, we're humbled before the way the work of Christ has been spoken of here. And we confess that we are often confused, sometimes still wallowing in guilt that Christ has really taken away, and sometimes feeling weak and defeated before enemies who really don't have any final power over us. Bring these things to our mind. May they forge a confidence and a hope and a trust in us that we might walk boldly in this world as your people, the products of the victory of the cross and the open tomb. In Jesus' name, amen.